Welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. You know, when we last spoke, I was talking about going through some anxiety, and um, it continued since then. Got pretty intense there for a while. You know, when I was doing my breathing and my my telling myself that I was, uh, you know, uh, false evidence appearing real and all that, but uh, it persisted. I think I narrowed it down, or or at least narrowed most of it down, to a couple things going on at work. And I had a, a pretty pretty anxious day on, on Monday. Well, anyway, Tuesday night, I was able to get a little bit off my chest to a couple people at work. And it felt great. Just sort of letting them know where I was at did a lot, you know? And then Wednesday was the last day of work, and I slept for about 36 hours from about 5 o'clock on Wednesday night to about 7.30 on Friday morning. I essentially missed the entire day of Thursday, June 27th. I mean, I would get up here and there to take care of the dogs and maybe eat a little bit. But, but yeah, I, uh, I slept an almost disturbing amount. And not that I would have watched the uh, debates anyway, but you know, I slept through them both. And um, I don't think I missed much. In about 10 days, I'm leaving for a conference in Minnesota. It's called Free Minds, Free People. It's a conference uh, about um, really education for liberation. You can find out more at fmfp.org. And you should think about going. While I'm there, I'm going to try to get an interview and post an episode for the uh, on the normal schedule on July 14th. And then pretty much as soon as I get back from the conference... I'm having a second surgery on my ankle, you know, and that's not something to look forward to. It's um, it's only arthroscopic, so it's going to be a, a better recovery than the, the last one, which was, you know, an emergency surgery. But, you know, still, you know, crutches in a boot for six weeks isn't exactly the best way to round out the summer, but, you know, I got to do it then. And maybe some of the anxiety was coming from that, not so much around the surgery or anything, but around um, knowing that, like, pretty much starting in 10 days like my, my whole summer is just kind of booked you know it's it's kind of uh shot i mean don't get me wrong i i very much look forward to the conference and i enjoy it a lot it's gonna be great but i'm, I'm part of the the team that puts it together and you know so there's a little bit of work involved going there too so in other words you know i have maybe two weeks or so of real summer where i can pretty much do nothing and everything Instead of, you know, the normal, like, 10 weeks or whatever. I know nobody's playing a violin for me. I'm a teacher. I have off for the summer. Blah, 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 blah. I know that. Today's episode is featuring a fellow teacher. A colleague of mine, a friend of mine named Shauna. We have similar roots. Uh, grew up a few years apart. Uh, two towns apart. And, you know, we wound up in the same place. But our paths were, were very different. She had a very different upbringing than I did. And as you'll see was... Uh, very active uh, with activism and organizing in college, and I didn't really get radicalized till after college. We discuss how that activism affected her teaching, how being a parent has changed her, and how she's embracing the muddiness of it all, the complicated nature of trying to build the world that we imagine. Remember to stay tuned after the interview for some important information and a request. Okay. Here's my conversation with Shauna. I'm Eleanor Rigby. 
Okay, folks, after three straight episodes in the HQ with the doggies, uh, we're mobile again, but still in good old Montclair, New Jersey. Today's human is? Shauna. All right, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, so usually I start by um, asking folks about their, their intro music. So I don't believe I ever heard Aretha's version of Eleanor Rigby before you selected it. So tell me why you chose that. I just love that song so much. Um, well, I always think of Eleanor Rigby as like super sad, like the saddest, minor key, just depressing. Like if you want to really go down, that's a good place to go. And then Aretha takes it and completely rearranges it and makes it like puts it in the major and makes it her own thing where it could actually be like a happy song listening to her version. And I just love that she took something that was so familiar and evoked this intense emotion, but then made it her own. And to me, like, it just kind of represents, like, all of the possibilities of making beauty out of sadness and, um, and darkness in a way, and then taking it into the light in such a positive way and on your own. And I just, I love listening to her do that yeah it was really good i, I, I was like this is this yeah. is really good I'm, I'm surprised i never heard it before so do you feel like uh that's a theme of yours or something that you've had to do a lot you mm -hmm. know turning the dark into the light yeah i feel like that's just the whole damn deal <laughs> i mean that's the whole story you know looking out at the world and seeing the sadness the oppression the injustices and then trying to bring light to all of that and trying to do that for people, you know, creating a place of, um, of love and joy in the midst of all of, all of uh, you know, the worst parts of, of our human story. That's to me, like, that's what it's all about. Mm. And so let's talk then a little bit about how we got to there. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I, a um, few years apart, but grew up a uh, couple towns apart, same mm -hmm. county in, in New Jersey. I would say, you know, pretty suburban. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we could have gone uh, a couple ways. Yeah. You know, but we both kind of ended up in this sort of, you know, I guess, social justice education pocket, if mm -hmm. you will. You know, mm -hmm. so... So what was, what was it like uh, when you were younger, and how do you think you got on that path? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I grew up in this suburban, totally mostly white suburban town in New Jersey, um, the second of four kids. My parents were um, kind of hippies, and, um, you know, my, my family was always, like, my father's side they were sort of uh, envisioned themselves more of like an intellectual type and my moms were definitely more working class they didn't finish school um, my grandmother went to 10th grade my grandpa he graduated high school in Passaic before going off to World War II but um but my family was political my my mother you know I was raised with free to be you and me and we went to rallies and we went to Clearwater, you know, festivals when I was little, and my uncle was this, you know, crazy hippie vegetarian guy, and every family event we'd be singing, you know, Woody Guthrie and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and, 
you know, if I had a hammer and all of that stuff. And my mom was involved with the Union County Anti-Poverty Association in the like 70s. Um, and so we were always and very politically minded. My dad got the New York Times every Sunday and he would sit there with coffee and the Times everywhere. And we were always engaging in conversations, always talking about the world. And, um, and my parents were critical of our leadership and anti-war and all of that. So I was raised with that. Um, my mom was a feminist. You know, we she had three sons and me, and we always were, uh, you know, we were singing, Do You Know Free to Be You and Me? And I've heard it, but um, I, don't, I don't think I remember it. It was like the soundtrack of my childhood, you know. So we were always um, very politically minded and activist minded. Um, my mom was always encouraging me to find my own way and not follow the crowd, even though I lived in a very you know follow the crowd town yeah i was gonna ask does this yeah. sort of you know upbringing the milieu of, of your family is this sort of uh not the norm for where you were not at all i always felt like an outsider always always felt one step away and i think that had to do with being jewish in a town that was to me felt very white bread very um I'm sure I'm wrong, but my perception was that it was like everyone was off the Mayflower, you know, <laughs> even yeah. though everyone was either Italian or Irish. Yeah. But um, I felt really like one step distant from everyone. But that always gave me like a sense of identity. Like I know, like my name, I've always felt like announced me wherever I was, like in a town of Jennifer's and Jessica's and Melissa's, they'd come to my name and be like, what? <laughs> you know, the subs never knew how to say it. And it was, it always felt, you know, the word I used to use was always felt very ethnic to be like Shauna Stein. It was like announcing Jew, Jew, <laughs> you know, like wherever I went. So I always, I always had that sense. And I was um, sort of politicized about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust really young. So I always felt like that was something different about me. But my parents, my mom didn't want us to feel like that was a bad thing. She always wanted me to feel like you're special because of that, not you're less than. Although it didn't always feel like that. I was going to say, did that no. work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, of course, I wanted to be, you know, like everyone else. And mm -hmm. I wanted to, um, you know, have the right outfits and you know, know what to say, all the, you know, all the things that mm -hmm. any kid or middle schooler wants mm -hmm. or high schooler. Yeah. So after that, you're at Rutgers, Douglas particularly, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the choice to go to Douglas and how that sort of well, forged you. So my parents got divorced okay. um, when I was in 10th grade and it sort of blew up the whole scene. That whole sort of, you know, suburban idyllic looking exterior that they had created just kind of completely fell apart and um i was the second of four kids so my dad was like you can go to Rutgers, you can go to Rutgers." so there was really no choice mm -hmm. and at the time it was the best deal um i was maybe like a b student i wasn't super honors 
kid. Um, I was in like maybe one or two honors classes, but I never felt like in high school, but I never felt like I was smart. You know, I never had a sense of myself like that when I was in high school. And so I went to Douglas. So I was excited to go to Rutgers, except, well, that's not true. Let me, let me back up. I didn't, I was one of those kids who just wanted to get the heck out of New Jersey. I was like, that's it. I don't want to be here anymore. I wanted to apply to all of these schools far, far away. And, um, and my cousin, who was a huge influence on my life, was encouraging me to go. She had, you know, sort of chosen all these cool schools for me to go to. And my dad was like, we don't even apply. Just don't even apply. So I wanted to go to Hampshire and I had like read all these funky places and UC Boulder. I was like, or you, you know, yeah, I just thought I'd want to go away, get out of New Jersey. I couldn't stand being here anymore. And then as it turned out, it was Rutgers. And um, I got there. I bawled my eyes out for like a week. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't believe the scene that I thought it was. Um, you know, it was 1991. There was like big hair. I was like this hippie girl. We, on orientation weekend, went to like a party and it was down frat row. And guys were like screaming from the porches at mm. the freshmen. And the girls I were with were kind of like giggly. And I was like, what the, can I swear? Oh, absolutely. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? This yeah, is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. This is the worst thing ever. And then, um, and then we, and then I was at some club fair and there was these people standing outside and there was this guy playing guitar and he had long hair. And I was like, my people, my people are here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, at the time, you know, the organization was CARE, the Campaign for an Affordable Records Education. People were doing CISPIS work and doing work for CIA off campus. And um, it was like the tail end of the Gulf War stuff. And mm. people were still kind of talking about that and anti-imperialism. And I went to talk to them and they invited me to a meeting. And the whole world changed. Comple- that, was, that was all it took within a week of being at Rutgers. My entire, my entire trajectory of where I was going shifted completely. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that shift. I know yeah. we, we know a couple of the same folks from that, mm-hmm. that area. So talk a little bit about some of the, the activist work, the organizing that you were doing there. Well, so my first year, it was all CARE. CARE was the campaign for affordable records education. I got there in 91. Um, tuition had gone up over 200% in the 80s. And these people were talking about, um, you know, how Rutgers needed to be the state university for working class people, that education should be, education is a right, education is not just for the privileged few, that um, especially our state schools, I mean, people were saying really radical ideas like open enrollment and no tuition. Um, And then the dialogue and the conversation that people were having about the world was mind-blowing. Um, to me, it was brand new. And also, you know, they, they, now that I look back on it, like, I think someone was probably assigned to me (laughs) to like, you take her, like people befriended me right away. Like there was a party right away. So there was like a scene 
there was like like it's like a stereotype of college there were people in rooms smoking cigarettes and talking about like you know Lenin and you know have you read this and what about this and people were handing me books and it was cool and like staying up all night with my roommates talking you know about the world and everything you would imagine like the whole world opened up um and it was fun and smart so that was the beginning of the organizing so someone you know someone was like assigned to me to to like befriend me and help me along and they gave me a job they gave me a role right away i was going to be like a press person Within like two months, I learned how to write a press release. I had like, you know, this is back before cell phones. We would have long lists. It was like organizing 101, like Saul Alinsky kind of rules for radicals organizing. I had lists of, um, you know, the local uh, presses, who to call. Um, I knew how to write an advisory, a press release. I would be the point person at rallies and events. We'd ran press conferences. And these people like you know, kind of pulled me in. And and there were a couple other first-year students, too. And it just shaped how I approached my classes. I was working at the dining hall, Cooper Dining Hall. And um, it just shaped my whole world view. Um, And I felt a part of something that was, you know, in my 18-year-old mind, like, we were going to do something. And we did. We actually really did. I mean, we were activists. We took over buildings. Um, I got in big trouble. How so? Well, probably the most poorly planned building takeover of all time. (laughs) Um, I can't remember, was it my sophomore? I think it was my sophomore year. Well, I got in trouble a couple of ways. Um, the worst in trouble was, um, maybe it was my junior, I can't even remember what year, is that bad? So at... There were, so with CARE, with CARE, I got involved in a lot of other kinds of organizing. It wasn't just CARE work, but it was through the Campaign for an Affordable Records Education that I um, also joined the Douglas College Government Association because I wanted to be, um, we sort of envisioned ourselves like we should be in the, our own group, but also be organizing through the democratic institutions that they have. And so what CARE wanted was a vote on the Board of, board of Governors and um, we wanted, it was like a pro-democracy campaign. We wanted to vote on the Board of Governors, and we wanted to cap tuition. And at the time, it was Governor Florio, and we were trying to work on capping tuition hikes. So, um, so we also wanted to make Rutgers more uh, de- democratic and less corporate-run. The president at the time and all of the people on the Board of Governors were like from Chemical Bank and all these banking, uh, you know, and associations. They were making all these or corporate, you know, deals to have Rutgers be more corporate. Um, it was bit just before they made this huge deal with Coca-Cola. And so we were trying to, like, democratize, you know, Rutgers um, and keep tuition low. Like, we wanted to vote on the Board of Governors. We wanted um, tuition caps or tuition rollbacks. But, um, but through that, I got involved with all sorts of other radicalism. So at one point in Rutgers, I can't remember if it was spring of my sophomore year, the Rutgers Senate tried to pass through this new disciplinary action, uh, new disciplinary rules. 
that would actually have students be able to go, the police, the Rutgers police, who are state police, be able to come into your off-campus housing and all sorts of stuff, and, and like kangaroo courts. And we were part of a coalition of students who were like, you can't just push this through. And they were trying to do it the last meeting of the year. So it was like in May. And they knew all the students would leave campus in the summer. So they said um, they were trying to rush it through. So we tried to get them to delay the vote, but, but they wouldn't. So someone cooked up this idea that we should, you know, what's left to do but disrupt. So we were going to take over the president's office. So we stayed up all night and came up with this crazy plan. We had, um, we had success the year before when we took over. We had, I was involved in two building takeovers. We took over the campus communications building and we took over the um, Bishop House. And when we took over the campus communications building, we had actually chained ourselves to a radiator. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was that we were going to use that chaining yourself idea but we we're going to do it in the president's office so <laughs> it was just the most poorly executed thing ever and we had stayed up all night and it was really bad and as we someone had like you know the layout of the blueprint of the office and then like the masses <laughs> were supposed to come you know we were supposed to do it at an event so that people came but it was really early in the morning it was just a terrible plan and when we walked in there we had our chain but we couldn't find a radiator. <laughs> it was terrible. We walked past the secretaries and I felt bad immediately. Like I knew it was going wrong, but I knew I just had to go with it, go for it. And um, we ended up chaining ourselves to like an upholstered chair. And then the cops came and within like two minutes, they took some big like metal cutter and just were like gunk. And then they arrested us all. And, you know put us in the cop car, took us down to the police station. So, and that was after, that was already like my third year organizing. So I was already heavy duty into it. So that's like the worst trouble I had ever gotten into. But, um, but I had been in some scary situations before that with, through my organizing. We were, we came up to a board of governors meeting in Newark one year that got busted up my first year, I think. And they were, that was the first time I ever was involved with any kind of police violence. And that was really scary for this little suburban girl. Um, you know, getting shoved hard and kind of hit. And then I was involved in um, a, a famous uh, Douglas protest where we bore our breasts. Um, and that was exciting. And then, you know, that was then being arrested. All of that took place before the the biggest thing I was involved with, which was when we tried to get the president off campus. Do you know that whole story? I, I you know, I've heard about it, but mm -hmm. I don't know that I know the one who's tell it. Well, so we had this president of Rutgers named Francis Lawrence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was from Tulane, and he came up in, in 1995, it was my senior year. He had, um, this is like before cell phones and all that. So someone had a recording of him, it was just an audio, but he was at a faculty union meeting and he made a comment where he said African-Americans score lower on SATs because of gene genetic inferiorities. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so a group of us, um, a huge group of us, it was like 
a giant coalition, black student associations, the LSU, the Latino student associations, the um, LGBT, you know, the, all of these groups got together, including my organization, the organization I was with, and we just took over campus. We demanded that he resign, 1,200 of us. We marched down um, George Street and we took over Route 18. We marched in the middle of this major highway, um, in the middle of an intersection. We were marching to the president's mansion. Like the president actually has a, um, you know, the, the they give him a mansion, they give him a house at Rutgers. And, um, and we sat down in the middle of an intersection and we were holding interlocking arms and we were chanting and we had stopped traffic on both Route 18 and Mettler's Lane, which is, it's not there anymore because there's an overpass now, mm -hmm, yeah. but it was a huge intersection like by River Road. Mm -hmm. um, and they brought in um, vans of Plain Coast police officers with, um, with uh, batons. And they were going to arrest, getting ready to arrest a whole bunch of people. And we were chanting and we wanted the president to resign. And the news cameras were there. And some of the deans were actually marching with us. There were a couple deans. They were, you know, it was a, it was a crazy time because I'm going to mess up some of the timing of this because I don't exactly remember. But, but after the president made that comment and a whole bunch of us were organizing someone said that a bomb a pipe bomb had been planted in the douglas library i don't know if you remember this but no, no one had ever seen any damage they said that a bookshelf was damaged but no one had ever seen any of that or anything at all or nobody was hurt there were no books hurt as far as i know nobody knew if that to this day i don't know if it's true but what I do know is that the FBI came to campus and they started targeting us organizers. So I was getting followed. My father had FBI agents calling him at his work. And I hadn't lived with my dad in years. I didn't share an address with him. And they were calling him and asking him um, if they would meet with him to talk about my actions. and. To this day, Whoa. well, we were involved with, I was organizing for Raz in Newark. I feel like I'm kind of all over the place, <laughs> but we were involved with a lot of stuff. And um, we were driving up and down, back and forth to Newark. I was involved with Raz in his first campaign in 94 to run for mayor of Newark. And uh, at the time, and Mary was still alive, and Mary Baraka, and we would go to his house, on, on, you know, and we were really involved with it some heavy-duty organizing. So in that spring, so some bomb apparently goes off, the FBI are all over campus, they're targeting activists, and then we march down Mettler's Lane to try to get him to resign. And to this day, I'm still bitter about what happened because when we were sitting in that intersection, I was with my little brother, um, who was also a Rutgers student by that point. He was a, a freshman. And I had argued that if we stayed and they had arrested hundreds of students, it would have been like between like 100 and 200 students, that would have been enough of a news story that I still, I felt like that 
tactically would have been the right thing to do because they would have dropped the charges anyway on most people. And that could have been what we needed to push that story out. And then that would have been enough to maybe get him to really resign and to get what we needed. But instead, when the van started to pull up with the police and one of the police officers started to say that there was a woman in labor who couldn't get to the hospital in her car because we were blocking the intersection, which nobody knows if that's true or not, people started to get scared. And even though we had elected a tactical leadership, that was an elected leadership. Yeah. We had armbands. We knew that we were supposed to be the ones making the decision. When it came down to it, the guy with the bullhorn, who was not supposed to be making a unilateral decision, who is still a friend of mine, um, got on the bullhorn and made his own call. And we got up and left the intersection. They didn't arrest anyone until later. What, what do you know? A bunch of kids get, get summonses in the mail, which, of course, is a lot less dramatic than if they had to have arrested in front of the sure, cameras. Yeah. So to this day, obviously, I'm still a little mad. He never resigned. Yeah, he was there when I got there. He never. I transferred there in 98. He yeah. was still there. Yeah, he never resigned. For years, there were professors who had, like, can Fran signs up in their windows. Um, he said he misspoke. You know, it was just one of the, those things, like, and it was a, it was the first time I was in a true coalition of, like, multiracial, mul- there was, like, all sorts of people that were the anarchists, the communists, like, everybody was sort of working together, and he never resigned. So, you know, that was, and I was with, Miss, you know, Rodney Jackson was oh. one of the guys with me in that in that march and and the other cool thing we did at that night uh, and during that organizing time was we um i wasn't there that night but my little brother was we sat down in the middle of a umass versus rutgers basketball game on center court and um had to stop the game and it was being televised on espn that was a big deal because it was all over the news so yeah i didn't realize it had gotten oh yeah to the level of FBI. I know. Not many people know that. I remember my dad calling me and he was a little nervous. You know, he was very nervous. He was, you know, my dad's exactly the age that he was around when, you know, during the Vietnam War and there was all sorts of FBI stuff and he had cousins involved in all of that. And he was nervous and like, I have to call these people back. And I was like, don't, don't, just don't. And they were leaving their card. Like, it was crazy. They left their card <laughs> at my dad's office on Springfield Ave in, yeah. like, Springfield, New Jersey. And I'd, I'd never been associated with that address. It was his office. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I was also, during that time, we had study groups. And so we were getting super into, like, heavy-duty organizing. And so we would choose a book, and we would all be meeting, and I was involved in just it it was like every night of the week there was another meeting and then we'd have like a you know we were reading Lenin and you know we were reading all the all the everything all the main communist pieces Mm -hmm. and Alexandra Kolontai and arguing about gender and 
mm. trying to rein some of the toxic masculinity that rears an ugly head in that movement and it was hard work yeah it's not immune uh, at all i've had my own experience with that uh, organization that i was a part of basically dissolved yeah because of a, a poorly handled uh rape case yeah oh yeah. yeah i mean i remember even having conversations about like when we're meeting other people, you need to introduce me as well as a leader. Like we had to have signals for some of the guy leaders because they would meet another organization and the guys would just talk to the other guys and there would be a woman standing there. And I'd be like, I remember we had like an actual code word for it where if I said like, oh, what time is it? Someone would have to be like, oh, and this is Shauna. She's also mm. in the leadership. You know? It's a hell of a thing. Oh, it was meetings upon meetings. of. I mean, it was, yeah. it was exhausting. So, I guess one question I, I'd ask you is, I think a lot of the typical narrative or the stereotype is that campuses these days have kind of gone too far mm. you know they're sort of quote-unquote limiting free speech and, mm. and all that so what's your take on that how do you, oh, you process that you know I don't I don't know um you know it's that it's such a hard question mm -hmm. to me like mm -hmm. I think people have the right to come and speak and I think people have the right to protest and yell them down if they want to but I can see where that gets complicated depending on where you're at. Mm -hmm. um, I think cancel culture is really destructive. Hmm. Um, you know, I think in we need to be like, I don't know. It, it's so, it, that's such a hard question it for is, me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm torn about things. I'm of two minds about some yeah, of this stuff too. Me too. I don't know where I land yet. Like some of the, um, like, like when I think about like, you know, if Nazis are coming to campus and, you know, um, the Klan and all of that crazy stuff, like we have the right to get out there, you know, and end fascism. Like, yeah, we, we should be loud and we should be protesting and we should be saying we don't want you here or, you know, though that's part of, you know, the, that's part of it. But then I, you know, I worry that, um, that could obviously go the other way too. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so. um, yeah. I not being of the current generation, I kind of um, feel like I should take my cues from them a little yeah. bit. You know, and yeah. kind of see where they're going with it. You know, because uh, everybody's like, "Oh, well, there's no safe spaces in the real world." Yeah, and it's like, well, actually, maybe they're creating a world where there will be. Yeah, you know? and like yeah. maybe we should just kind of wait and see. <laughs> I know, I know the safe space thing too. I have a hard time with. I feel like. I rather, you know, I just went to this really cool workshop about creating brave spaces and like mm -hmm. what the difference between safe space and brave space. And oh, it, cool. The brave space thing really resonated with me that we need to, you know, be willing to be wrong, be willing to say the wrong thing and not feel like someone's going to cancel us out, you know, be willing to be brave enough to have these conversations. And that to me, I think, is one of the biggest problems we have in this country that we can't we we just when we've taken our entire history and just keep moving forward 
without ever dealing with what this, all the hurt and the pain and the genocide and the oppression and we just keep moving forward and we never, you know, delve in the muck and the mud of, of it and, and apologizing and critically looking at all of the problems that it's caused. So when we, there's hate, there's, there's, um, there's hurt, you know, and there's anger and there's, and there's so much hurt. And I don't think we've ever healed from any of that collectively yeah. or individually. Mm-hmm. And, and when we just keep moving forward and pretending like it's not there, we're getting deeper in as opposed to coming clean. Like we're not going to ever be able to heal from it until we actually deal with that shit. And so in that way, I feel like let it all out. Let's be brave about saying stuff. So what if you're wrong? Be wrong. Hear that you're wrong. Learn from it. And then don't be wrong again. Or be wrong again until you can be... I don't know. Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. I think... Well, not that I'm, like, you know, defending, you know, yeah. certain people who are in certain groups and might have, you know, um, you know, a responsibility to be on a point in their journey that they're not at yet. But also there are well-intentioned people that are shit scared to say the wrong thing yeah. in some of these spaces. Right. And so I don't know necessarily that there's growth there. Uh, totally and it silences it i think white people have a really hard time talking about race especially well-intentioned white people the the fascists have no problem (laughs) the white supremacists they have no problem talking about whiteness but like i do i think people are terrified that they're going to say the wrong thing and so they don't say anything which is awful yeah and that 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 is is tough so I would I would peg you as uh, from what I know a teacher who does try to cultivate brave spaces mm-hmm. with students. What got you into teaching, and how did mm. this life of sort of you know um, activism, for lack of a better shorthand, you mm-hmm. know, um, inflect your teaching? So, so here I was in college, like this activist person, and I knew that that's that I wasn't going to sit in an office somewhere. And um, I couldn't imagine what I could do with my life. And in my fantasy world, I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. But I was terrified. And I didn't know how and what that would mean. And what does that look like? How do people do that? Like in 1995, it just scared me. I had worked my whole life since I was 14. I had a job. I paid my own rent. I took care of myself. And I was terrified of not having an income. And how do I buy gas and pay rent? And like, so I, you know, the day I signed the promissory note to go to graduate school to get a loan to be, you know, to get my teacher certificate, to get my, uh, to go to school, I just signed the note and then I like cried to my, my best friend, like, Am I only doing this because I'm afraid to do something else? Like, I remember being so scared. Like, teaching felt safe to me. It felt stable. Um, And it felt like a place... Like, it felt like, okay, I could... it's It's a job. It's a real job, you know? Um, Whereas, like, 
going around the world making documentaries to change the world, that just felt like, oh, how do you, I just couldn't, mm. I didn't know what that would look like, or I was, I was scared. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I decided I was going to be a teacher, I started subbing, I started getting into the schools and, and reading mm-hmm. everything I could. I like devoured front to cover rethinking schools. And the minute I got in and started subbing, I was like, oh yeah, no, this is it. This is it. This is my, this is going to be what, what I'm, this is me. And I loved history. I loved um, Zinn and, and the ideas of like another way to look at the world. And to me, teaching was an extension of organizing because mm-hmm. it was the same idea. It was showing people a sense of their own power. It was some of that same Saul Alinsky grassroots organizing stuff, the union stuff that I was like involved in, you know, that kind of thinking. It was giving people a sense of their own power, you know, helping, uh, not helping, but like, um, yeah, taking another look at through through the lens of reshaping um, history um, teaching people that they can be the masters of their own world and, and work to change this world for all of us. Like it was that, I thought that at the time, you know, I was totally turned on by the radical teaching world. I read about the freedom schools and I was like, oh my gosh, this is right. And I never, I, I never looked back until recently (laughs) but I didn't I didn't look back I I knew it was the right thing for me and I got into reading about education and and reading about like the real politics of like understanding social reproduction and like some of that Gene Anion like Mm -hmm. old Mm -hmm. stuff and that just totally um excited me and so I knew that teaching to me was like an extension of organizing and I I was going to be a social studies teacher who was going to, you know, teach to transform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I knew that it was about transformative for me and I wanted to be in a public school and I wanted to be doing that through U.S. history or any history. Right. So. Yeah. Um, so you said uh, you joked uh, that you didn't look back until recently. Mm. Um, do you want to talk about anything that's going on recently or mm. no? I've been having a hard time recently with teaching, and for years I felt like, you know, the the social structures of public education are sort of just so limited, and they are, you know, it's set up in a way that, um, like I was saying, that, that really do reproduce society's inequities mm-hmm. over and over again, mm-hmm. right? Even some of that Gene Anion stuff, I think, is still really true. Absolutely. You know, that we teach the children of the bosses to be bosses, right? To be good critical thinkers and to analyze the world around them. And we teach the children of the working class to comply and be on time and obey the rules. Um, I've always felt like that structure was, um, you know, some people say the system is broken. I think it's working exactly how it's intended to work um and i felt like i could make change and feel purposeful in my own little way within that 
within that. I didn't want to go work in some like funky charter or some Waldorf or some monast like even though I fantasize about, you know, people who are trying a whole new world. I've always been like attracted to like communes and that kind of thing. But that wasn't me. I was going to do it within these confines and I felt good about that for the first half of my career. I have. And lately I've been feeling like I really have been questioning public schools and are we more part of the problem? And even those of us doing the good work within it, you know, I've just been feeling a little down about it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But feel, you know, you're feeling its limitations. I am, yeah. and I'm feeling, I'm feeling pushed in um, by it rather than. Um, empowered by it yeah. and you know could just be that it was a rough year could be that it's june and i'm tired you mm. know and maybe i just need some perspective this summer and a little time away um but and you know it just been feeling i feel sad about that it breaks my heart a little bit mm. you know um i got a great email from a kid today that made me really happy saying how much she for of all things that I taught this year, she wanted to talk about the Mexican American War, and I'm like, that's <laughs> awesome, you know. And um, that made me feel good. But I've been feeling worried about education, and um, you know, part of it I think is that I was also working at Rutgers teaching materials and methods, mm -hmm. and one of the main focuses right now is this new teacher performance assessment. Sure, yeah. And so. Here I was showing this whole new crop of young social studies teachers like, oh my gosh, the possibilities of education are <laughs> so awesome. It's so amazing. Yeah, yeah. Look at all these cool things you could do. And I was introducing them to like funky, you know, alternative assessments and like exciting role plays and really cool pieces and just wanting to them to get excited and passionate about all this awesome stuff. But like weighing over us was this horrible teacher assessment that was so formulaic and so short-sighted and so, you know, the assumption is that the teacher is just a cog in the wheel and you don't have creativity or autonomy or any kind of like, you know, um, that, that teaching is not an art. That teaching is just a checklist. And I was even noticing some of the kids were saying, the students were saying to me, well, what can I do to can you just show me like a perfect lesson and then I can just check off if I'm doing it? <laughs> and it was getting me down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like making me feel sad about the whole thing because I was feeling it's not like that. That's teaching is an art. It's got, you know, ups and downs and it's, we're talking about creativity and humans and we're, it's about connecting mm -hmm. with each other and people and stories and it's messy and, Right, and we in in uh, in a high school have students, um, many of them, who are uh, you know results oriented, don't really or want to check those boxes on the high school level. But then when you see the people who are supposed to be the teachers yep. <laughs> checking the boxes, yeah. then it's like, well, where's the future of education well, going? Well, that's what I think yeah. it was that this generation of students, because my students were all twenty two, twenty three, yeah. twenty one, they're part of that rubric generation. And so, you know, they were given a checklist in high school, the Saiyan Ne, and they were taking that into 
that that's just like was the result of how they see everything now. Mm-hmm. How do I just tell me how to do it? And it was so that was getting me down. So I think I was getting it from both ends. Mm-hmm. Um, add to that just the complications of of teaching in in this town, particularly. Sure. You know, yeah. one of um, my husband and I. You know, Jamie's a teacher, and we've been in this together for twenty years. And my favorite example of like the story that I think totally exemplifies Montclair and teaching in this town is that I think it was my second year of teaching. Um, a group of students wanted to put on a performance of Eve Ensler's The Vagina Monologues. So I don't, do you know this story? Did I ever tell you, you this story? You might have told me, but, I, but tell it anyway. Well, it's a, it's a long story, but, um, they wanted to put on this production of the Vagina Monologues, and they it was a group of students that I was working with, and they um, they were it was approved, and then one parent got upset about the piece that my that her student that her daughter was going to read, and it was a particularly tough piece. It dealt with sexual violence, and she was worried that her you know worried about her seventeen year old daughter performing this. Um, and so that one parent got really upset and talked to the superintendent who put a whole, you know, just put an end to it. And uh, we got in big trouble and I wasn't tenured yet and I got pulled aside and um, they wouldn't let them use the word vagina. <laughs> so the kids used all these great words. They would say like, please come try out for the birth canal monologues or for the, you know, they had all these funny euphemisms. Um, so we we had we weren't allowed to do it so we created an organization called um, Montclair Youth Now Club completely disassociated from the school Um, I wouldn't go to any of their rehearsals because I was terrified I was going to lose my job like the superintendent called me in my apartment when I was like 27 years old Um, and I they ended up putting on this performance in a performance space made $1,300 donated it all to charity. It was the most beautiful, brilliant event. And because of that, one of the parents wrote me up and I got a Weston Award. Oh, there you so go. what was so funny is that's the perfect example of Montclair. What was radical and cool and really pushing the envelope, I got in trouble for and then rewarded for in the same year, <laughs> which is exactly Montclair. Yeah. It's Mont, you know? Like they were going to ban um, Kefir Boy, the book. And then Mark Mathabaney came to Montclair High School and they got rewarded. It was like all in the same few months. Right. So it's, to me, that's the perfect example of where we are with education sometimes in Montclair. I got in trouble and, uh, you know, applauded for the same thing. But... Mm. You know, in the same yeah, and, and I think uh, what we're seeing, um, you know, is that notion of there's sort of always historically, as you know, been a battle over the soul mm. of education. Like, what's it for? Are we preparing the labor totally. force, or are yep. we, you know, preparing citizens, so to speak? You know, for lack of a better shorthand. Yeah. You know, and I think we've we get a a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. You know, we get that very transactional parent who wants the mm-hmm. credential for their kid to turn key to the next you know, piece right. of paper to, you know, be right. part of some sort of managerial class or something. And then, you know, but then we've got some other folks who are like way into the, yeah. the funky stuff. Yeah, know? totally. 
Totally. Uh, you and Jamie met on the job, right? Yeah. Yeah, we were both first-year teachers. Um, he had student-taught at Montclair High School with Jim Aquavia, and I student-taught down in North Brunswick. And um, we both were first-year teachers, and at the time, they take they would take all the new hires on this yellow bus ride, the yellow school bus, and they took us around town, and they drove by each school, and they drove by the public library, and they kind of showed Montclair to all the new teachers. And I met Jamie on the bus. Mm. And the rest is there. And, the re- <laughs> <laughs> and I, he was really kind of like my first boyfriend. Mm. And I never... Well, you were too busy in college, clearly. I was busy. Well, there was time for everything. Um, I was busy, but I also... Um, I was... I think I was terrified of that part of myself. Did it have something to do with uh, your parents? Um, probably, I'm sure. But also just that I didn't feel confident I didn't feel like you know desirable or any in any way that I was like deserving of that I also didn't feel like I really trusted men Mm. I didn't really feel like I could connect to them other than just as some close guy friends and I've always been very close to my brothers but I always had stronger relationships with my girlfriends and really strong strong connections to women and I never really felt that way with guys except for a couple of good friends and I think also just how I I didn't feel like I was worthy of of that kind of attention and I didn't feel it myself uh, you know and um yeah I mean I think when I met him it was like out of the movies like what I had imagined like I couldn't wait you know the whole nine couldn't wait to see him you know all of it I knew right away good that's good (laughs) yeah (laughs) I know I mean I knew right away that you know there was something really different and special so how is um you know uh, I've had I guess uh, maybe I guess a dozen or so people Mm -hmm. Uh, to talk to, and only a few of them have been parents, Mm -hmm. you know, so um, how has being a parent sort of, uh, I guess, shaped you, you know, I mean, uh, obviously it's a a pull on time and resources in one direction, you know, uh, but it also opens up these other possibilities, Mm. and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you have, I think, you know, a really cool example of an of a really cool upbringing that you could like pass on so what's being a parent like for you well it's changed everything it changes your whole world in an instant um i always knew i wanted to be a parent i wanted to have a lot of kids (laughs) i loved it i was one of those lucky people i loved being pregnant i loved having my babies i loved the whole thing i felt more confident than i should have i now when i even look back i don't know what gave me that confidence i had my I had Bodhi at home with a midwife. It was the most transformative, unbelievable um, to do, to, to have a, a child um, on your own and to be so, it was like this primal part of your, all of that. Like it's, I don't know if you want to hear all of that stuff, but it was like, <laughs> 
to feel a connection to like mothers of all like I could get really hippy dippy about it but I felt this like sort of spiritual connection to all these mothers before me it felt like my whole being was um, gonna do this amazing thing that was so strong going to the scariest place and living through it and being powerful like that shifted my whole outlook on the world and on what I could do and what I could accomplish and what Jamie and I could do together um, felt like on top of the world you know as a, I, I loved being a mom of, of young kids and babies kid part is harder than the baby part <laughs> the baby part is easy you know you just mm. keep them clean and wipe their trishies yeah, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> nurse them constantly and that was it um but it shifted everything i mean it makes you feel a sense of of, that the world's way bigger than yourself um for me that's how it felt for me i'm not saying that for all parents um you have to do for them and you have to um you know i'm always conscious of like you know when you're in the classroom and you want to be a best version of yourself because you want the kids to look up to you or to see you as a as a model of of an adult it's like that with your kids you want to be you want to be a good the best person you can and you know and be yourself and help them be yourself it's a it's i love it i mean it's Mm. awesome it's hard it's the hardest thing i've ever done Mm. and you feel like you're screwing up all the time Mm. but um you know it's it, it changes everything it changed how i taught Definitely. How so? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, just practically, like, I used to give a test on a Friday and go, my lesson plan the next day would be to go over the test. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I would actually, like, sit up all night and grade it and be ready to go over it. Just on a practical level, the work, it was much, much harder to get my work done. Mm -hmm. When you come home, it was just, that was it. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do the work at home anymore. I used to sit right here at this desk and work and work and work into the night in front of my computer. Once I had kids, I couldn't do that anymore. And I didn't want to. So it made teaching, I had to be more creative at work to find work, find time to do work. But also it just gave me so much more compassion for um, kids and families. Mm. I think it made me a better teacher, Um, especially having a, a kid who's not a traditional learner, doesn't like school, you know, I, it just made me it's made me have even more of a soft spot for those kids and really wanting to do right by them. Mm. I really want to do right by those lower level kids who aren't good at school mm-hmm. and who hate school. Mm-hmm. I want them, you know, cause I know I see that in my own kid. Yeah. He's so smart and just school is not the place he's going to thrive. Yeah. And he's not going to like me. I was one of those kids in a book all the time. I used to get punished for reading under my covers at night. <laughs> like, I would get in trouble because I was supposed to be asleep. And I would stay up till like, 2 in the morning with flashlights. He was never, never wanted to read. It was a struggle. It didn't yeah. come easy for him. So I think being a parent of a kid like that may just, you know, it expands. It makes me a better teacher. Sure. And, you know, I think further develops the uh, your, I, I, at least from what I can see, the idea of, you know, well, maybe we need to rethink 
things like homework totally. and grading. Oh and, my gosh. Know, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, so we're getting uh, just about at the uh, mm-hmm. the hour okay. point where you know I, I tend to land the plane, I guess. Okay. Um, what's been left unsaid? I know we spent a lot of time on your activism, but what do you think is, is sort of a, a, a piece of Shauna that maybe I don't know about or that maybe listeners might find interesting or something, uh, hmm. you know, that makes you tick or a little turning point in your life or something that, I don't know, that maybe we haven't covered yet? Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I was one of those kids who, you know, saw like a movie in kindergarten or first grade about the Holocaust, like a TV movie. And just scared me to death. And I had nightmares. It wasn't even nightmares. Because once I was asleep, it was fine. I was afraid to go to sleep. So it wasn't like I woke up with bad dreams. But so when I was like seven, I was in first grade. I don't know what my parents were thinking, but they let me watch this movie. And um, it had a huge impact on me. And there's a lot of Jewish kids who feel... A similar way and I know I'm sure other kids and other cultures with histories but it had I was like attracted and repelled to learning about the Holocaust mm. all at the same time right mm. I couldn't get enough of it like I would want to take out books from the library that were way beyond my comprehension and understanding but then repelled and terrified at the same time and I didn't want to like do Holocaust things that the temple is doing until that's all I wanted to do, you know? So it was like this moment that I can I can remember. I remember the movie even. And and so it's I think when I look back on it what terrified me about it was not like monsters or Godzillas or like things that I knew weren't real. What terrified me about it was that it was real. And I knew it was real and I knew it was people like me. And so, like, when I would go, I wouldn't sleep over friends' houses because I used to think, well, if they come and get me in the night, I'll be in a different place than my parents. Like, that's how crazy (laughs) I would get about it. And it's been so interesting to me that I've sort of come this full circle where now in my life, I am like totally immersed in Holocaust education. Teaching other people how to teach about it. Teaching other people how to teach about it. This summer I'm going to go on this tour of all of these concentration camps and all these infamous sites, they call it. Um, And it's like I can't get enough of this story and other stories like it and genocide, not just the European Holocaust. And I do think there's so many lessons about it. Um... But the biggest lesson that's emerged in the last year for me has been the messiness of it all. And so, like, I had this moment when when I, when I we teach, like, in Facing History, they do this thing where you look at roles and you'll say, like, so-and-so is a perpetrator, there's an upstander, there's a bystander, mm-hmm. there's a victim. Mm-hmm. And the biggest sort of revelation to me has been that no one is any one of those things. Hmm. Yeah, And I know that sounds maybe that's, oh, duh, but for me to really imagine that everyone is of a gradation of all of those at the same time 
has just blown open, you know, blown open my, um, my sense of like, like, I guess we're coming full circle. Cause I used to think when I was younger, like these people are just bad and they're oppressors and we need to get rid of them. And they did all these things and we need to start a world without them. And now, <laughs> you know, the 20 year old me, that was fine. But the 46 year old me, I sort of think of that idea of like the blurring roles that were all, all of those things in different places at different times and levels. I think of that as this more like inclusive sort of, how do we all together come together knowing that? Does that make sense? I think so, yeah. So the person who is the Nazi youth is a victim as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and then becomes a perpetrator or someone in the Judenrat could have been a victim and, you know, with faced with all sorts of choiceless choices. You know, it just made me that's been something I've been thinking about a lot. And I think that shaped like how I think about like cancel culture or people who have like, you know, the Me Too movement and all these people have done these terrible, hurtful things, how we can bring them back in not push them out how do we pull people in Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know where i've landed with that but that's so that's maybe a moment that i feel like has been um you know sort of shaping me um and how i think about you know the world and the roles we play and oppressors oppressors all of that Mm -hmm. oh yeah it's uh it's Sometimes I, I, I'll tell students, listen, the short answer is it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now I can tell you more, right. but the short answer is it's, it's, it's complicated. It's muddy. Yeah. It's just so muddy. Uh, so tell us about your your uh, outro music. Oh, Which Ani song did you pick? I couldn't I couldn't choose. You want me to just pick one for you? <laughs> I couldn't choose. I love her so much, and I'm just rereading. I'm reading her memoir, and it's okay. totally my childhood, uh, my my uh, young adulthood. When when I first saw her play for like four dollars at the Rutgers uh, computer lab, Lori Hall somewhere. Remember that place? Mm-hmm. She like strummed the guitar, and I was like, done. I was smitten. I just couldn't believe this woman who was like pretty much my age or like a year older and the way she played and what she sang about felt like oh my god so either I was thinking either not a pretty girl or I like fuel I don't know if you know either of those songs I know the first one or out of range I don't think uh, (laughs) I've dabbled love her well I guess I'll I'll bear the burden of choosing one for you. Not a pretty girl or fuel. How about? Okay. Maybe we'll play a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time uh, to sit down with me at a crazy time in the, Thanks, Brian. the school year. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, of course. It was great. Damsel in distress And I don't need 
Beneath the impossible pain of our history Beneath the unknown bones Beneath the bedrock of the mystery Beneath the sewage system and the path train Beneath the cobblestones and the water main Beneath the traffic of friendships and street deals Beneath the screeching of kamikaze cab wheels Beneath everything I can think of to think about Beneath it all, beneath all, get out Beneath the good and the kind and the stupid and the cruel There's a fire that's just waiting for fuel There's a fire just waiting for Okay, so that was my conversation with my friend Shauna. I hope you found her story as interesting as I did. Go to BrianTalksToHumans.net for more information, including my email and my social media, and a link to Patreon where you can donate to the cause. We're hitting the summer months, which means my funds for hosting fees and whatnot are running low, so please consider donating. If you or someone you know would like to write music for the show, please contact me. And if you think you or someone you know would be a good guest for the show, please contact. That's it for now. Stay human. Cause all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Cause all the freaky people.